Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is El Monitor columnist Daoud Kutab, the highly regarded and influential Palestinian journalist and media activist. Daoud and I will be talking about Palestinian politics, the impact of Israel's normalization agreements with now four Arab countries, the prospects for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations in a regional conference next year, and how Palestinians are reacting to the coming of a Joe Biden administration. My conversation with Daoud Kutab begins after this short break, including an update on the signals being sent by Iran President Hassan Rouhani to President-elect Joe Biden on the Iran nuclear deal. To the certain degree, Mahmoud Abbas has been credited for being a principled man. He has not given up anything. He's held on to his position. But basically, as a result, he has frozen the movement. He has not really given it the energy that uh, even Yasser Arafat was much more engaging, was much more uh, a salesman who tried to give and take and tried to see what he can do with the in a few cards that he had to get the most out of them. Mahmoud Abbas doesn't go for that kind of guerrilla economic uh, marketing. He just says, this is what I believe in. And once the, the rest of the world can accept that, then we will talk. And that doesn't really work in today's politics where you have to lobby people, we have to lobby government leaders, and you have to take advantage of the wealth of support you have around the world. And I think that's where his mistake is. That was Daoud Kutab, who will be joining us shortly. Let me first mention something on my mind, and that is the signals from Iran that Iran is eager to bury the hatchet with the incoming Biden administration, at least on the nuclear account, if the U.S. returns to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, as the Iran nuclear deal is known. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani last week called for President-elect Joe Biden to reverse sanctions imposed by the U.S. after the Trump administration withdrew from the JCPOA in May 2018. Rouhani told a cabinet meeting last Wednesday that Biden, and I'm quoting Rouhani here, can put a good piece of paper on the table and sign it nicely so that we could return to the first place, and it does not take time at all. Rouhani's message echoes that of his foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, who said last month that if Biden revokes, quote, only three executive orders that impose sanctions on Iran, there is no need for, as Zarif put it, preconditions or negotiations. During the U.S. presidential campaign, Biden assailed Trump's withdrawal from the JCPOA as a setback for U.S. nonproliferation efforts and has called for a return to the Iran nuclear deal if Iran is in compliance with the deal's terms. Iran, however, is not in compliance in response to Trump's maximum pressure policies the last two and a half years. Iran has increased its enrichment of uranium, and that's a necessary step toward a nuclear weapon. In the process, Iran has bypassed JCPOA terms. Iran has also expanded its use of centrifuges in violation of the JCPOA. Rouhani is under pressure from 
Iran's Islamic Consultative Assembly, that's the official name for its parliament or modulus as it's called, where hardliners hold the majority. The modulus passed a law on December 1st to suspend UN inspections of its nuclear facilities and further increase enriched uranium production unless the terms of the JCPOA are reinstated. And this was all done, I should say, in response to the assassination of nuclear scientist and Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps General Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, which Iran has blamed on Israel and Iranian opposition groups and, by implication, the United States. Now, Iran's uranium enrichment levels are not yet close to weapon production levels, and not even the levels before the JCPOA went into effect. And Zarif has made clear that any of these actions taken over the last few years are all reversible. If the U.S. revokes the executive orders which impose the sanctions, Zarif said, Iran will carry out its obligations too, meaning it will quickly get back into compliance with the JCPOA. Now, Biden told New York Times columnist Tom Friedman this month that and I'm quoting Biden here, the United States would rejoin the agreement as a starting point for follow-on negotiations. Now, Friedman notes that while there may be arguments for using the Trump sanctions as leverage in the opening diplomatic bid, the prevailing view among the Biden team, according to Friedman, is to get Iran back into full JCPOA compliance first. Biden told Friedman that his administration, quote, in consultation with our allies and partners, unquote, will then seek subsequent agreements, in Biden's words, to tighten and lengthen Iran's nuclear constraints, as well as address the missile program. While Rouhani is under his own constraints, political constraints, there's an election in June and Rouhani's not running again. Rouhani and Zarif have dropped previous demands for an apology and compensation from the United States for the effects of the maximum pressure policies. The message from the Iranian establishment, according to El Monitor contributor Ali Hashem, is that it's the old deal or no deal. Or at least that's the opening bid from Tehran for now anyway. Biden admitted to Tom Friedman that it will be hard to re-enter the deal. Some in the U.S. see the pressure on Iran as leverage, and the Trump administration keeps the sanctions coming. This week, it added another set of sanctions on Iran, this time related to the abduction of Robert Levinson, the former FBI agent who is believed to have died in captivity in Iran. And there may be more sanctions to come in coming weeks in Iran so far, to say again, has no interest in a new deal. It prefers to quickly get back into the old deal. This story is a work in progress. You can see our latest assessment in this week's Week in Review and every day in our reporting from Iran and elsewhere here at El Monitor. Now to our conversation with El Monitor columnist Daoud Kutab, the highly regarded and influential Palestinian journalist and media activist. Daoud is the Director General of Community Media Network, a not-for-profit media organization dedicated to advancing independent media in the Arab region. Daoud himself is indeed a global leader in promoting press freedom. He is also the author of Sesame Street, Palestine by Bear Manor Media. 
My conversation with Daoud Kutab begins now. Daoud, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you. You wrote for Monitor a few days ago, and I'm quoting from your article now, that, quote, the resignation of Hanan Ashrawi from the PLO's executive committee appears to reflect the demise of a movement that has been hollowed out from the inside by the single rule of the 85-year-old Palestinian president who was elected in 2005 and whose leadership has not been publicly reconfirmed since. This is strong stuff. And what you're describing is really a, a major crisis in Palestinian governance. Where do you see this going and how can it be addressed? Well, there's two issues that uh, are in my article. One is the demise of the PLO as an organization that basically was for the diaspora Palestinians, it was for the right of return. And it was the uh, active organization that Yasser Arafat and Mahmoud Abbas and others created to kind of remind the world of Palestine. That part of the PLO, I think, or the PLO in that capacity has no longer have a reason to exist. There, there is no uh, raison d'etre for the PLO because the 90% uh, of the interest is on the, on the ground, is in the Palestinian areas. And that's what's taken up most of the time. And so it's become a shell of an organization rather than an effective one. I talk about money. The PLO used to basically have a huge budget and the head of the finance department, the PLO was like the, the money man. Now it's the opposite. Now the Palestinian government spends money and sends money to the PLO. So, so things have been reversed. So that's one problem. The second problem is that Palestinian politics in general have been um, paralyzed because of the one man, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, he's done some good things, but basically he has not given enough uh, opportunity for new blood to, to come in. I mean, he blames it on Gaza, he blames it on other things, but, but the reality is that he's a, a one-man rule for now. You're close to what's happening uh, in the West Bank, and tell us how, what are young people on the ground thinking about Palestinian politics? Is there a next generation of leaders what do they care about? What types of changes would they like to see in Palestinian governance? Well, the next generation is is like a bunch of 15, 60-year-olds. <laughs> Even the second generation, compared to Mahmoud Abbas, the, the youth of the movement is quite old already. So uh, we might have to skip a generation to really get to people who are much more active now. But basically, I think they prefer to see a movement that's much more um, engaging. I think to a certain degree, Mahmoud Abbas has been credited for being a principled man. He has not given up anything. He's held on to his position. But basically, as a result, he has frozen the movement. He has not really given it the energy that uh, even Yasser Arafat was much more engaging, was much more a salesman who tried to give and take and try to see what he can do with the, you know, few cards that he had to get the most out of them. Mahmoud Abbas doesn't go for that kind of guerrilla economic uh, marketing. He just says, this is what I believe in. And once the, the rest of the world can accept that, then we will talk. And that doesn't really work in today's politics where you have to lobby people, where you have to lobby government leaders, and you have to take advantage 
of the wealth of support you have around the world. And I think that's where his mistake is. Let me mention uh, two individuals whose names uh, sometimes come up as potential leaders in Fatah and, and, and Palestinian governance. One is uh, Marwan Barghouti, who's uh, still in Israeli uh, prison, uh, and he's been mentioned as a leader for some time. I, I don't know if that's still the case. And then there's also former uh, Fatah security chief for Gaza, Mohammed Dahlan, who is also an advisor to Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. His name off, off also comes up as being in the mix. Uh, do you see them as uh, as candidates, competitors for leadership or not? And are there others you're you're looking to as potential leaders? Well, uh, Marwan Barghouti was the leader of the Intifada. And uh, people uh, respect a lot the leaders of the Intifada because it really brought some change on the ground. It really did cause a change in the way the Palestinian narrative is being seen. Now he's in jail for a long time and unless he's released in some kind of a prison exchange or some kind of a benevolent Israeli decision, it's unlikely that he will be able to carry out his, his wishes. And therefore, uh, you know, he is a leader, but he is basically unable to, to carry out. Didn't, I'm told Mahmoud Abbas doesn't like him very much. I don't know. Um, the uh, Muhammad Dahlan has strong has some support on the ground, but he's totally uh, discredited within the Fatah movement. So unless he creates this, a new uh, party and and competes for for the votes of the people, uh, he also will not have a chance to really reinfiltrate the organization that he came up with. So. I think neither one of them, uh, at least in the short term, uh, has a chance of uh, replacing Mahmoud Abbas. I would look to uh, two wings that are emerging now within the existing leadership. One wing is led by um, Jibril Rajoub, the, also the security man, who is now also the head of the Palestinian Sports uh, Federation. That's also a very popular uh, movement, and he was the leader in the Intifada along with Marwan Barghouti. So he and Marwan Barghouti are close enough and he can represent Marwan's uh, wing, if you will. Also with him is Muhammad, um, Mahmoud Al-Aloul, Fatah uh, leader whose son was killed in the Intifada. He came back with Arafat. He is um, Mahmoud Abbas's pick, one of his picks as his deputy, but he doesn't have a strong public support on the ground. This is one wing. Uh, I would say it's a bit more um, engaging, but also a bit more radical than the second wing. The second wing are the two deputies that Mahmoud Abbas is taking with him whenever he goes outside of Palestine and who negotiates with Israel and with the international community. And that is made up of um, Hussein Sheikh, the head or the minister for civil affairs. And he's the one who is in constant negotiations with Israel on money and on movement of, and so on. And uh, the second one is the head of the intelligence uh, service, Majid uh, Faraj. Uh, again, both of these men um, are strong within Fatah, but they don't have a, a support on the ground the way that Jibril Rajoub and Marwan Barouti. So if I, I was a betting man, I would bet on Jibril Rajoub, uh, but uh, you never know in politics how things uh, turn out. 
There was a flurry of meetings late summer and fall between Fatah and Hamas leaders that gave some, I guess, uh, temporary hope for that there could be some reconciliation prompted, of course, by the UAE and Bahrain's decisions to normalize with Israel. This seems to have fallen apart. Uh, where does Hamas Fatah reconciliation stand and how, how do you see the implications of this division, which is now persisted for what, about 15 years or so, or almost 15 years? Yeah, what happened is that um, Jibril Rajoub, the man I just spoke about, um, tried to get his um, old friends in prison from Hamas to uh, agree on, on a reconciliation path. And they met in Istanbul at the Palestinian embassy there, and then they met in, in, in Cairo to basically uh, hammer out the details of elections that both sides had agreed upon. But while they were in Cairo, um, the two things have happened that really messed things up. Uh, you'll be surprised by them. One of them is that Biden won the elections and that actually uh, took away some of the uh, concerns that Palestinians had that things were with a second, uh, by a second Trump term would really turn bad and they have to unite. And the second one was that uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, and Hussein Sheikh, who basically had boycotted Israel, not taking any money and stopped security coordination, decided to uh, reinstate security coordination and get the money that is the Palestinian money collected by Israel for revenues and taxes and customs. That basically uh, blew apart the efforts of Rajoub for reconciliation and things are at a standstill now. They haven't gone out, but they basically are not moving anywhere um, possible. So we're back at the standstill that we had before. And unless one side is willing to make major compromise to the other, um, what united everybody was the uh, um, twin normalization and the, the potential of Trump winning. And the, at least the Trump part is, uh, is no longer there. And so the people are not as worried as they used to be. We've been talking about the future of, of Fatah and the PLO. What about Hamas? Uh, the situation remains dire in Gaza. Uh, for many reasons, as we cover at Al Monitor. How do you see the situation there? How do you see Hamas's staying power and the role of Iran in Hamas? Um, I'm not sure Iran is a key uh, external force. I would look more to Qatar and Turkey more than Iran, um, not only because Iran is a Shiite and Hamas is a much more uh, zealot uh, Sunni uh, movement, but um, nevertheless, I think the the yeah. I mean, part of the problem is this: the fact that uh, they have to play proxies to different external powers, and that slows down the reconciliations. But uh, Hamas has basically bitten more than it can chew. It's unable to run Gaza properly. And at the same time, is not willing to give up uh, control. And unless it's willing to, to give up control, uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the, the mainstream Palestinian government in Ramallah are not interested in getting Gaza back while Hamas is still uh, has a security um, uh, front. The way the same problem that Lebanon is having with Hezbollah, this is what people are afraid of that if uh, 
if the PLO goes back to, to Gaza, they will have a Hamas, uh, something like Hezbollah causing trouble because they have weapons and they have guns. And so you have two forces of military forces, and that's not a good formula for governors. In the meantime, the humanitarian situation in Gaza uh, deteriorates. Uh, it's a major international crisis. Uh, there was a, a flurry of, of reports over the last few months. These come out uh, regularly about uh, the depths of the situation. We Again, we've covered this here at El Monitor. How do you see this generation of Gaza that's, that's growing up in, in such difficult situations? Uh, it's, a, it's a stalemate. It's a real stalemate. The people are not happy, uh, but Hamas is not giving up power. And uh, every time there is, um, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, somehow external politics, other issues seem to close that uh, window. So um, I don't know. There is really no major, no way to solve it unless, I mean, just imagine the fact that Israel begs Qatar to bring cash money, 10, $15 million in cash, to carry it across the Ares checkpoint so that Hamas can pay the, the staff, the employees of, of the public service. I mean, it's so funny because the Israelis are actually trying to keep Hamas alive, but they're saying they're doing this because they don't want Gaza to blow up anymore. So it's, it's a very unusual stalemate. And um, unless there is major changes within the Palestinian government, within Hamas or within Israel, I, I don't see any, any way that it can be resolved. Now, Hamas is supposed to have its Politburo elections in 2021. Um, this, you know, we're thinking there would be some type of elections in 2021. Um, maybe with the new blood, new blood coming into the Palestinian politics, things could improve. I don't know. But it's a stalemate. Last week, Israel normalized ties with Morocco. Now there are four countries that have normalized since the summer. UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, now Morocco. Some are saying Oman could be next. Uh, you mentioned uh, Qatar. Mahmoud Abbas is in Qatar today, and Qatar's maintained its channels, which you just described, between Israel and the Palestinians for years, especially over the Gaza situation. Now, the game changer for normalization, of course, would be Saudi Arabia. But that seems to have been set back after the revelation of this meeting, which uh, these Saudis and other have denied between Prime Minister Netanyahu, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Secretary of State Pompeo in Saudi a few weeks ago. And you saw Saudi Prince uh, Turkey Faisal's remarks at the Manama Dialogue. Help us understand where Saudi Arabia is in the picture and how you see this all uh, coming together perhaps um, around an international conference next year. President Abbas has talked about it. Um, and where do you see Saudi Arabia take, taking its position ultimately? Well, the normalization that you mentioned, each one of them is, was created in what I call the Trump uh, political bazaar. Trump is, uh, and, and Kushner, his son-in-law, basically uh, created a, a, an opportunity for any country that wants to make any deal, wants to need anything to, um, basically they became the Israeli agents 
giving up whatever these countries wanted in return for uh, whatever they wanted. And so UAE wanted the F-35 airplanes and the Israel and the US were against it. And so they, they made the normalization to get, the, um, to get these planes. Bahrain, many think that Bahrain was pushed by Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia did not want to normalize. Tunisia, uh, Sudan hasn't really normalized in the full sense. They still have not made the final decision. They're waiting for elections. But they, they, were, they tried to get their interest. They wanted to get their name out of the anti-terrorist. And they seem to have gotten it. I think today they were officially announced that it was no longer on a terrorist, which makes it funny that you know America decides who's a terrorist and who's not. And it's based on what they give or not give to Israel. You know, I, I just can't, you know, explain it and how it has really weakened any attempt to really uh, fight against terrorism. And Morocco also wanted uh, the uh, U.S. to 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 declare sovereignty over the Western Sahara, something that is unbelievable because the whole world and the UN are in negotiations about that, and they've made clear decisions that only the self-determination of the people of Sahara decides where they belong. Again, political bazaar, give and take, they sold things out, they got things for it. I'm also told that the US is planning $3 billion in investment in, in Morocco. All of this uh, shows that none of these countries really did this out of their free will and out of their love for Israel, but out of uh, certain interests. Now, it seems that the UAE and Bahrain uh, kind of a love fest in the beginning seems to be, you know, they're coming to Tel Aviv and they're, you know, loving Tel Aviv and so on. But I think that will wear out quickly and they will realize what they have done. But um, Saudi Arabia is a different uh, uh, player. They don't need anything from the U.S. The only thing they needed from the U.S. they got, which is to cover up for the killing of uh, Khashoggi. And so uh, they are not uh, that easily bought and sold the way the other countries could be uh, bought and sold. Plus, the Saudis are the originators of the Arab peace plan. And it really would look bad to them that they are the ones who created the plan which calls for Israel to have normal relations with Arab countries only after it withdraws from all areas it occupied in 1967. So the fact that... Uh, uh, Saudis uh, are um, in that position and the fact that the King Salman, who is much more pro-Palestinian than his son, the crown prince, is still alive, we find, we, I don't think anything is going to happen or change uh, in our lifetime so long as Mr. Uh, the King is still alive. If the King is gone, we will see who will take his place, whether the crown prince will get the, the bay'ah, the support from all other uh, heirs of the Saudis. Uh, it's a complicated issue. I'm sure you know that. And, and so until that happens, I don't think there will be any normalization in the full sense. There will be, you know, they allowed uh, flights to go over uh, Saudi territory and they made, they might have had this meeting with Mohammed bin Salman, but I think the Saudis will not uh, be involved in any kind of overt uh, normalization in the near future. What about the prospects for a peace conference? And you know, uh, as you said, Saudi Arabia continues to hold to the Arab Peace Initiative. 
UAE and Bahrain also have said that they also support Arab peace initiative and, and efforts to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian issue. This was, uh, this was announced by President Mahmoud Abbas that he would like to move toward a, a regional conference as soon as, as next year, in 2021. Uh, how would you see that playing out? Do you think in the sense that the, uh, the normalization could lead uh, to some momentum for um, an Arab regional effort to sit down with uh, Israel and negotiate a, uh, you know, try to deal with the issues between Israel and Palestinians. Well, it's a it's a novel idea, and it's a, it's a time to to be um, to work after Biden takes over. Uh, I doubt in the first half of 2021 that Biden or, or Mr. Blinken or anybody else will have time for for the Middle East conference. Uh, conference. I think Iran is much higher on their, um, on their uh, agenda as the Paris Accord, as uh, China and Russia and all these other countries. But once they get around to it, I think the Americans uh, under Biden might entertain being involved in the conference. But I, I, I don't think conference by itself can really produce any results. Conference has to have, has to be the, the, pinnacle of behind the scenes work about a solution that is about to be agreed upon and you just need that kind of international umbrella to cover it. I don't see any of that happening at the present time. And as a result, I, I think whether there is a conference or not, um, I don't think it's going to be a, a groundbreaker. I don't think it's going to, to cause any major change. I don't think it's going to produce the, the coveted result. I think the Biden administration sooner or later will appoint um, an envoy to the Middle East. And, and once that envoy takes over and starts working with all the parties, we will find out. And of course, we don't know if Israel will have elections in March. And so again, the Israelis will be too busy with elections if there is anything in the first half or first quarter of 2021 to, to really engage with any kind of a conference and certainly under Netanyahu, I doubt that there will be any progress that can be made, not that the others are that much more flexible, but at least they might be a bit more logical than, than, uh, than um, Netanyahu. So I don't, I don't have much hope in the, in the conference, but it might take place and just will be just another conference that some people will, will make statements and then everybody will go home. Prime Minister Netanyahu and others in the Israeli government have said that rather than a conference, what's needed is the resumption of direct negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian leadership. Do you see that happening? Yeah, but there was a there was a there was a condition. He wanted the negotiations to take place on the Trump vision, and that's a non-starter. So if they want to have direct talks without the uh, the Trump uh, vision as the basis, then we have to figure out what is the basis of talk, under which umbrella do we just talk without any kind of uh, framework. So I think there needs to be some type of a framework, it could be a loose framework, but you cannot really have direct talks unless you really have some kind of framework. I think Netanyahu uh, will only use it and he's a skilled diplomat to, you know, to have a few brownie points to keep himself out of jail, but. I don't think he's, he's going to make 
that hard, courageous decisions that need to be made to have peace uh, after you know years and years or decades of war and conflict. Oud, you've gotten into a few of these issues already in our conversation. You know, Joe Biden will take office as president next month. Uh, he's well known in the region and by Israeli and Palestinian leaders. Many familiar faces uh, will be back in his administration on national security and Middle East issues. Tell us about the reaction in the West Bank and, and Gaza among the Palestinian leadership and among the people uh, to Biden coming in. And, and there, in, in your view, um, optimism uh, because of the change of administration? I think um, not just Palestine, but I think certainly in the Arab world, and I'm sure the rest of the world, um, there was two issues that were in the elections. It was the um, international relations that the U.S. had with the rest of the world. And secondly, the issue of the, the future of democracy in the world. Many, many people I, that I know of, uh, and I've talked to many people, were really concerned that in the way um, other leaders around the world, in Hungary, in Brazil, in India, in, uh, in were, you know, you're having a lot of these authoritarian leaders using democracy to really reach power and to basically stay in power. Uh, and so people, I think, had real worries. And I, I think this last elections was the most watched elections in the entire world, certainly in our region. People watched it very closely. They followed every slight detail of every little, you know, Wisconsin uh, council <laughs> voting and re-voting and re-electing. It was an amazing uh, issue. There was such an appetite for people wanting to know what was happening in America. You can't, I cannot underestimate to you how closely people in the Arab world and probably the rest of the world were watching these elections. So uh, optimism is, is an understatement. People are certainly uh, more optimistic, but not thinking that, you know, Biden is going to be the savior for Palestine, but that the disaster we had with Trump, with the embassy movement, with the recognition of, of Golan Heights, with the stopping of all support to hospitals and to cancer units in Jerusalem and to water places in the West Bank, all that, you know, these are all among the things that people really were concerned about. And so with Biden uh, winning, I think there is a, a sense of relief that you know the abyss that we were close to reaching is been is no longer there but not that people really feel that you know uh mahmoud abbas and biden are going to make peace with netanyahu overnight but that at least the bad four years are not going to be repeated that badly Dawood, thank you for your time, your analysis and insights today. Really enjoyed it. And thank you for your many contributions to our monitor. Yeah, thank you. And this is uh, time for me to really give my gratitude to our monitor. It has given me a huge um, platform that I didn't have before. I get more comments for what I write in Al monitor than anywhere else. So thank you for giving me that platform. And uh, for more happier days that we can talk about them at least in other topics as well. Thank you. It's uh, our pleasure. I will be back after this short break with a few takeaways from our conversation just now with Dawood Kotab.
I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Let me briefly mention two takeaways from my conversation with Daoud Kutab. First is his assessment of President Mahmoud Abbas, despite Abbas being well-respected, as having frozen the Palestinian movement by not engaging the next generation of leaders or holding elections. And that the lack of this connection and lack of engagement not only complicates intra-Palestinian politics within Fatah, the PLO, and dealing with Hamas, but also in dealing with Israel and the region. Second, Daoud was not optimistic about the prospect for either direct Israeli-Palestinian negotiations or a regional conference anytime soon. On direct negotiations, Daoud said this would require a framework for talks that so far doesn't exist. And in any case, he does not see Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu making any meaningful concessions. On a regional conference, Daoud does not see this as a priority for the Biden administration, and therefore the deep planning required for such a conference to be successful is unlikely to take place. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East, and thanks to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rochlin of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next week, and in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Music